0: Wait for Moises to get in here, and then I'll start. Moises, he starts everything for me. So, calling out names, yep. It's the way to go. Okay, come on in, everybody. Well, you know, uh, the award that people um, probably think about the most uh, when it comes to bravery, courage, pressure under fire uh, in the United States, the award that comes uh, to people's mind first usually is the Medal of Honor. Uh, the Medal of Honor is uh, given out by the U.S. military uh, for acts of valor uh, beyond the call of duty. And uh, really, uh, has anyone ever seen the Medal of Honor? Has anyone seen someone wearing it? It, it kind of, it commands a lot of respect and kind of awe. Uh, I was one time at CU, uh, uh, and one their, their, of their speaker was a Medal of Honor uh, recipient. And it's just kind of, it's like, whoa, this guy is, he is special. Uh, and some years they give out some, some years they don't. It's, it's very rare that it happens. Uh, they gave out one this year uh, to uh, Staff Sergeant uh, Ty Carter. And the president is usually the one that um, gives the Medal of Honor in the White House. There's quite a large ceremony for it to happen. And uh, Ty Carter received it this year in the White House uh, in August. The reason Ty received it was this. Uh, In 2009, uh, Ty was serving in Afghanistan, and uh, his uh, battalion, or actually it was just an infantry of men, just 53 of them, uh, were attacked by 300 Afghan rebels um, in the mountains. And uh, it it's kind of been kind of known uh, as the Battle of Kamdesh. It started at 6 a.m. in the morning and ended at 5 p.m. in the afternoon uh, as 300 uh, rebel Afghans uh, attacked these 53 infantrymen. Uh, And Staff Sergeant Carter did this during this time. He went from person to person resupplying them ammunition. Uh, to different fighting positions. He gave first aid to a, a wounded soldier that was right next to him. He fought off enemy troops, and he went to a place where a soldier was injured and pinned down by enemy fire. He went and rescued this soldier and brought him back to safety. During this time, he was also wounded in the battle. Pretty <laughs> amazing stuff against 300 rebel Afghans, uh, just 53 infantrymen, um, where over half of them were injured in the battle, and a dozen of them were killed. Well, we are going to see another battle today. Another great man that is entering into uh, kind of against major odds. And uh, maybe the Medal of Honor is appropriate for Gideon, uh, but uh, this is what makes it a little bit different. Um, in Afghanistan, uh, they weren't attacking 300 men. The 300 men were attacking them. Here in this story, uh, we are seeing Gideon do something insane, go against uh, a troop or an army that far outnumbered him. He decided to go into battle to do that. So maybe the Medal of Honor isn't appropriate. Maybe it's the Medal of luck. for winning, uh, the Medal of Stupidity, as some might see this battle, or just mad genius, you know? But the question I want to ask is, you know, Gideon didn't decide to do this himself. Instead, God told him to go into battle in this way. The question then for this morning is this. Why would God reduce the Israelite army before going into battle to fight these thousands of Midianites? Why would he reduce the Israelite numbers before deciding to go into battle? What was the purpose of this? And what does it communicate to us today? Well, let's read the passage and find out. It's a little long. Um, I decided not to break it up. I started to read the whole thing through. It's chapter 7. So here we go. My wife told me I need to make sure I say this. I say Jeroboam Baal. Baal. I say Baal instead of Baal. I say that that way because that's how my Hebrew professor told me I should say it in seminary. So um, if you're like, wow, he pronounces things wrong. That's how they told me to say it. So that's why I'm saying it that way. Okay? Okay. There we go. Okay. Chapter 7. then Jeroboam Baal, that is Gideon. And all the people who were with him rose early in a camp beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give to the Midianites into their land. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, "The people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you, and anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go." So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, "Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself." Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who laughed, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who laughed, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, to his tents, but retained the three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down, Hira, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, "Behold, I dreamed a dream." And And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it, so that it fell and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise. For the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of of all the camp and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp And all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as as the towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel-Meheleth by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. And Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, and capture the waters against them, as far as Bethbara, and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Bethbara and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb, to Gideon, across the Jordan. Wow, what do I say? The Word of the Lord, right? Is that what I to say? Thanks be to God. Man, this is the Word of the Lord. This is exciting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is Your Word. And it is amazing the things that happen uh, with the people of Israel. God, we pray for that same amazement with us. Pray these things in Your Son's name. Amen. Uh. Amen to read the whole story because it's kind of like you're in Sunday school again and stuff like that. And sometimes we just miss out when we read through a whole book. But uh, if you're just joining us, we've been going through the book of Judges. And there's good news about if you miss some weeks is that Judges is cyclical. The same thing kind of happens over and over again. Uh, And what happens first is uh, that people rebel. They sin against God. They worship the idols. And then what happens is God brings, um, in judgment against them, and also uh, for consequences of what they've done, other warring um, nations against them. They oppress them, the Israelites. The Israelites cry out and say, we need help. God raises up a deliverer, a judge, a leader, usually someone that has some warring capabilities up to defeat this opposing nation. And Israel then does it again. So it happens over and over again. But if you say, that sounds boring, it sounds over and over again, but every story in Judges is a little different, which makes it a little bit more exciting. The other Judges we studied earlier, again, were shorter, but here Gideon is longer. It's three chapters. And so why not, if we have three chapters in Gideon, why don't we spend three weeks in Gideon? So what we have so far, we spent last week in Gideon, and now we're in Gideon again, is we have God calling a judge, Gideon, a large calling a guy that doubted, one that was weak. And what God did was he showed his holiness to Gideon. He told Gideon to rid the idols in his life and the idols in Israel. And then God showed his power over Gideon's doubt. So that was all the calling. But here in chapter 7, this is where the rubber meets the road, okay? Here is where it gets good, right? If there's a story you probably remember in Sunday school, this might be it. And here we have 135,000 Midianites have crossed the Jordan. If you're wondering where that is, chapter 8, verse 10, 135,000 crossed the Jordan. And what are they going to do like they've done in the past seven years? They're going to raid Israel. They are going to take their land, their crops, their livestock, all these things so the Israelites hide in caves. They just do this over and over again. And so so Gideon has raised up his own army, his stellar army of how many? 32,000, okay. Um, okay, that's not, okay, it's, not, it's doable, okay? You still have surprise attack, right? It's four to one odds. Um, you know, it's at night. Okay, maybe 32,000 can go against 135,000. You know, it could happen. But we see... God has other things in mind than using the full 32,000. If you remember the story of Gideon in your Sunday school days, or maybe you've heard a sermon, Gideon, I have. And uh, these are kind of sometimes how the sermons go or my Sunday school lesson go, and this is kind of what I got from it, and so I'm going to give the Sunday school interpretation and application first, and then why I don't think it's probably the best interpretation, okay? So, uh, the Sunday school lesson usually works like this. The three to five, or three to whatever principles, uh, leadership principles of Gideon to winning a battle, Okay? So, the leadership principles of Gideon and how to win a battle in your life. That's kind of how it goes. So, step one of uh, this sermon would look like this. I'm going to get rid of the people that don't want to be there. Okay? So, what happens? If you want to be a good leader and apply this like Gideon would and apply it to your life, you've got to do this. You've got to take the people that in your life or in your business or in your home and you've got to say, okay, who's afraid? Who's scared? If you're scared and you don't want to be here in the workplace or wherever it might be, if you're a good leader, you'd say, you know what? You can use your gifts elsewhere. Okay? It works a little bit like that, right? So that's what Gideon did, right? He took 32,000 people, and then he said 22,000 people that were scared. God said, if they're scared, let them go, so they leave. Sorry, it's still a side note. But if I was the 10,000 people that remained and I saw 22,000 people leave, I might become one of the scared people the 22,000 when I see them go. But I don't know. So principle number one of being a good leader is um, see who wants to be there and who doesn't, and people that don't want to be there, let them go. Okay? So step two of being a good leader, you've got to find really a good, equipped leaders. Okay? You just can't have anyone. You've got to have the ones that are ready for battle that show it. So, what does Gideon do? By God's prompting. He takes the 10,000 that remain and they go to the water and uh, two things happen. Uh, or three things happen to what people do. One is that some people kneel all the way down and, and come like this and uh, don't laugh, but maybe laugh with their tongue like this. They're kneeling. And then there's the, some people that kind of sit like this and take their hand and go like this and bring it to their mouth. And some of the church interpretations I've seen and said is that, you know, the people, what God was doing is, the ones that went like this and lapped it up like this, is that they were ready. You know, they had their sword there. You know, they were looking ahead. They weren't all the way down like this, lapping with their tongue. So the principle here is you've got to have people that are ready to go with you in battle. Okay? That's principle number two. And then principle number three is this. You should develop a unique winning strategy, and stick with it. Okay? That's the principle of being a good leader like Gideon. So what does Gideon do? His, his strategy is this. I'm going to take the 300 men. They're not even going to have a sword. They're going to have a torch, and a jar in one hand, and they're going to have the trumpet in the other. We're going to attack them at night, and what we're going to do is we're going to attack them when they're changing, um, you know, uh, watchmen. So bear with me at what this looks like. So there would be watches at night. And some of the army would sleep, and the other part of the army would watch over. And on the switches, those men would come back to the tents and wake up the people that were sleeping to go. So what Gideon did would he blew the horns when they were making that switch. So it looked like the men that were coming off duty were actually the Israelites coming invading the camp. So the people that woke up from all these horns said, oh, They're attacking, and they attack their own men. So Gideon and his 300 men didn't even attack at all. Does that make sense? They weren't even in the battle. It was just the swords were just being drawn at each other. A great strategy. So here you go. That's my, my three principles, okay? If people are scared, don't have them be a part of what you're doing. Find the people that are truly equipped. Develop a winning strategy and go for it. Okay? That's my sermon for today. Glad you came. Okay? You know what? That's what I heard in Sunday school growing up. I heard that message. The thing is, it misses the whole emphasis of this whole passage is verse 2. Okay? It's like a verse 2. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their, into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Why did God decide to do it this way? He did it so the glory wouldn't go to Gideon. It wouldn't go to Israel. It wouldn't go to Gideon's smarts. But it would go ultimately to the Lord. He would be glorified. He would be shown. And let me point this out, okay? Um, Gideon and his people that he's with... Um, they should not receive the glory because what we learn about them. One, um, they are not the cool people under pressure, okay? As much as they might seem that way of what they've done, um, there are hints in this passage show these people are free. Okay? The first is this... Um, They encamped beside the spring of Herod. Now, I don't know if you know this, but um, sometimes the names that are given to areas um, have meaning and purpose, just like names given to people. They represent what is happening. And the verb, it's actually a verb there, Herod Herod in Hebrew is a verb for trembling. For trembling. So here the author is pointing out, again, this is the 32,000 are coming, but they are in a sense... Trembling and fearful of what is going to happen, and we see that fearfulness come out when twenty-two thousand of them actually leave. And how about Gideon himself? <gasps> okay, let's let's do a quick review again of, of Gideon. Okay, what happened? First of all, when we saw him on the scene, he was hiding in a wine press threshing wheat because he was scared of the Midianites. God revealed himself by this amazing burnt offering, okay? Then, after that burnt offering, God um, saved him from those that wanted to kill him because he destroyed the Baals. And then on top of that, he's scared of going into war and God provides the fleece that's wet and then dry. On top of that, Gideon, a guy that you think he should not be leading, 32,000 people. Think of that. You say, I'm going into battle and 32,000 people follow you to do that. That would be maybe a sign of God showing his power on you. That happens. All of these happens to Gideon. All of these revelations to him. And what still happens? God says, if you're still afraid, Gideon, if you're still afraid, you can go down with your servant and go here, not from my mouth, but from the mouth of the Midianites that I will give these people into your hands. So even Gideon himself is scared and frightful. Here's the thing with God. He's done this judge thing four times, okay? He's done it multiple times. And in the midst of doing this multiple times, of bringing a savior, bringing someone that would um, help them, they still wander from him. God is trying to say to Israel, I am in control here. Not the other gods, not the other nations. I am in the one that is in control. And you should boast not over your own skills, your own abilities. You should be boasting in me. Some of us might say God sounds like an approval hound. Why does God need praise? Why does he need boasting? God is saying because worshiping and boasting in anything else will lead you right back to where you are and where you were. God is saying if you boast in your own skills, if you boast in the mighty warriors of Israel, if you boast in Gideon, if you praise those things for being delivered, it will just lead you back into this cycle again. But instead, if you praise me, you worship me, and you glorify me, then you will have contentment, then you will be free, then you will be able to put your accomplishments and failures within the right light. Uh, There's been an article recently that's kind of made its way around the blogosphere, and uh, it's an article about uh, millennials. Sorry, I pick on millennials a lot because I'm one of them, and I know I have some of them among you. So, uh, those that are older that have kids as millennials, here's your chance to, to beat it in them. Okay, right? Okay. So, millennials are people born from 1978 to the mid 90s. Okay, and uh, the article is about um, trying to find out why the show why millennials are so unhappy and depressed, which is. Becoming a major problem. Okay, um, just look at how many drugs are prescribed. But um, millennials are unhappy and depressed. And uh, this author uh, uh, <laughs> gives some reasons why millennials are depressed and unhappy. Uh, she starts by saying that uh, millennials are delusional. Okay, <laughs> uh, they've been grown up being taught this: you are really special. Okay, you are unique. You know, um, it's kind of the, the boomer generation. They gave us this idea that we're, we're okay, and we're, we're loved, and we hold their hand, and you are just you just you are amazing, just for who you are. And this is kind of a message that's been taught from our culture. Like, you just put your heart to it. You can do anything you want. Our parents tell us this. And we say, yeah, we can. You did. As boomers, you got more than you expected. We can expect the same thing. But then what happens when we go to our first jobs, right? Out of college. Um, Our bosses tell us we're not as special as we think. Um, uh, We get criticized. Um, The idea that just follow your passions um, doesn't work as well when you're just doing data entry. You know? Where's my passions? Where is it getting me? And then on top of that, you go to Facebook, and you see your other friends posting pictures of how well their life is going, which is an exaggeration because they only post what's good, right? And you get even more depressed at this point. Okay, their life is going well. I'm in this place that I was told I was special. My boss doesn't really think I'm special. This job isn't very special. And it just all these things are piling on top of each other, and it's just making it worse and worse. <laughs> and here uh, the author gives some... Um, recommendations for millennials, this is what she says, she says, uh, we should, we shouldn't stop being wildly ambitious, we should still be wildly ambitious, we should stop thinking we are so special, and we should just ignore everyone else, and I, these are her exact words, okay, don't stop being wildly ambitious, stop thinking you're special, and ignore everyone else, okay, I'm not being pejorative, that's what she says millennials should do to help this problem. You know, I think that thought is pretty dangerous, okay? Um, I think it comes down to this philosophy. Just numb yourself up as much as you can. Buckle up. Work hard. Avoid other people. Don't think there's anything unique about you, and just do it. I think that can run us into some major problems, that type of thinking, Okay? But at the same time, I think she is right in this sense. That our specialness, millennials, our uniqueness, when we find it in ourselves, in our abilities, we realize that it fails us. <laughs> Does it not? We are not so special. We are not so unique in our own. Our skills, our gifts, they won't provide what we imagine in our head they can. God is trying to say in this passage, I think He is trying to say to us, when you boast in yourself, when you find pride in your own abilities, it will lead you to ruin. But if you find glory in me, and you see the way that I work in your life, you'll be able to take the criticism that comes your way and know that I'm using it for my glory, and you'll be able to take the praise in your way and not go to your head to know that, listen, I am working. Give glory to me, because there will come a time where you'll be taken off that pedestal. But again, the idea of numbing, the idea of, you know, the best way to do is just buckle, go forward, ignore everyone else, You can do it on your own. is not what God does here. What, in fact, does he do? Does he tell Gideon, look with me again, in verse 8. Does he tell Gideon, get your act together, bro. You trembling fool. Look at all these things I've shown you. Can't you believe me at all? Does God say that? No. You know, I say that. I say, no, he shouldn't bring his friend down there to go find out. I say that. Get with it, man. No, but God doesn't. He says, verse 9, sorry, that same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servants, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. God takes the initiative to give Gideon assurance. He says, here's a way that you can show, I can show you that I will provide for you. Even more than that, his kindness shows that I will provide a friend that can go with you into the spiritual place. On top of that, God shows someone outside of the people of Israel, someone that we'll call secular, someone outside of The church or whatever it might be to show, Gideon, you have been gifted. You have this. You can do this by showing him, once again, that these people have had a dream that God placed in their mind that Gideon would deliver them. God is patient with Gideon. All of these things God shows for his assurance to him. You know, the answer to us millennials, the answer to any of us, when it comes to the idea of fighting major battles or what it might be and giving God the glory, is that God will give us assurance. He gives us little steps along the way. If you doubt, say, God, I need your assurance. Show me that you are with me, that you abide by me, that you help me. I think God does do that to his people and for his people. And he does it here. I decided that all Tom Cruise movies before the year 2000 are the same, okay? They're all the same. And it works a little bit like this, okay? Tom Cruise is arrogant, brash, all these things at the beginning of the movie. He always picks up the girl in the wrong way. Then some tragedy happens, either by his own doing or something outside of himself, happens upon him. Um, He then has to redo his idea of his ambitions and his own pride. He rephrases that in a new way. He becomes, you know, enriched or whatever you might want to call it, self-actualized. And then he goes back to the girl that he used in the wrong way at the beginning, and he loves her in the right way. Because he's learning these lessons, okay? Right, right. Top Gun? It follows that, right? Yeah. Jerry Maguire? Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Cocktail? Yep. Yeah. A few good men. No girl in that one, but still ambitious and broken down. So it follows that pattern, right? Before 2000. After 2000, it veers off a little bit. But I, why? Why does it do this continuously, that same pattern? Because I think it speaks to the reality of the human person. I mean, these aren't Christian movies, you know. But the reality of the human person is someone that is prideful and arrogant and boastful. It says it is all me that has arrived and done it. We say, no, there's something wrong with that person. And not until they realize that they live for someone other than themselves and their own glory that they finally realize and put in perspective the gifts that they have been given. If you want to see that to the nth degree, I tell you to watch Jerry Maguire, one of my favorite movies. Why I think Jerry Maguire speaks to that the most is because it takes Cuba Gooding Jr., who deals with that same issue and t- from one angle, and Tom Cruise that deals with that issue, and then they butt heads against each other, right? How many have seen the movie? Same Okay. So, you get the before with the show me the money scene, right? Because you see how dysfunctional they both are. Because they're playing up each other, show me the money. Show me the... You see what they're really after. Tom is so desperate, Jerry is so desperate, that he'll even say, scream on the phone, show me the money. And Cuba is so messed up. What's his name in the movie? I'm trying to forget. I forget. Okay, anyway. But he's so messed up that he uses Tom in that way. My point is this, over the movie, if you watch it, you see that a friendship develops because they're both in a place that's really hard and difficult. They're not getting what they want. And they're not getting what they want from each other. The money (laughs) is what they want. But then they realize they're living for more than just the money. But actually, they're developing a friendship with each other that is more valuable than just the money. And they become richer and deeper people for it. How does this go with Gideon? It goes like this. Is that when we are prideful people, when we boast in our own accomplishments, when we don't see that God is the one that delivers, God is the one that delivered um, the Midianites into the Israelites' hands? When we see that God does those things, we were able to then see the situations in our life, the gifts that we have, in the right perspective, and be able to not get depressed when they don't go the way they want, or a big head when they go the way that we want them to. How do we know we're living that way? Uh, I think the major way we can know, and pastors say this a lot, but the major way we can know that we believe that God gets the glory, not ourselves, is if we're people of prayer. Take it with me. If you're a person of prayer, what you're saying is, the only one that can help me in this situation, the only one that can deliver a major problem in my life, an issue that I'm dealing with is God. God, I have to have you come into this situation of my life and help me. That is what prayer does. Prayer says, my strategies, my abilities, my ideas and thoughts to be able to get there, I have to put them on the shelf. And truthfully, I need you to intercede into my life. If you are a person of prayer, you are a person that says, God, I want you to get the glory, rather than myself. Why do I love church planning? (laughs) And why I think church planning is so cool is because um, in church planning, um, it's scary. Is this thing going to work? I've said this many times. Is this thing gonna work? Are we gonna happen? I mean, this isn't very hip. I mean, we have this little thing on the back on the right. We got a flag up here. Where we're meeting the Girl Scouts building. It's kind, of, it's okay, you know. We don't have a lot of money in the bank. We don't have tons of people. I don't have some crazy PowerPoint behind me or lights or anything like that. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying I don't have those things. But in church planning, you should go. God. Our strategies are not going to work. We need you. We are desperate. We are in need. And God says, that's where I want to work. I'm not saying just church plants have those thoughts, but it's easier when you get established to move away from God into your things that you have, your building, your money, or whatever you might, to fall back on that. We can't fall back on that. It sure is The only thing I can fall back is God, I have no idea what I'm doing. But I need you. It is by your power that you will intercede, it is by, by your power you will save. And the thing is, you will even take crazy strategies. That song, the Desert Song, so fitting. What swords did, the, did um, Gideon and his army come down with? They didn't even have a sword in their hand. And who had the sword? The Midianites. And what were they doing with the sword that has power? They were killing each other. God is saying this. The strategies of the world, the power of the world, I will bring to shame. But my power will show glory and power and strength. So that the only thing you can praise is not yourself, your own strategy, but me. So in church planning, and I in this trap and trap again. I go back to my strategies that will work. But I tell you this. All we can rejoice in together and what we do on Sunday morning and why we sing. Is you know who gets the glory for us being here? You know who gets the glory for this building? For working in our lives? God gets the glory, not us. Ty Carter, the invincible man, the medal of honor winner. One draped with invincibility. Right? The medal of honor, right? You know, he is the first Medal of Honor re- recipient to admit, I have post traumatic stress disorder. That was a, I, you might not think that's a big deal, but that is shame among many to admit that. And for a Medal of Honor recipient to admit, I am depressed, even to the point that I want to take my life because of what I experienced, he admitted that at the ceremony. And I think it shows us this. Ty's power and his ability, it can't come from his strength. It can't come from his bravery. It can't come from his valor. Because those things will fail. Truthfully, those things did fail. Because he himself is weak. Um. We're going to take communion, and I think communion is a representation of that exact message. Twelve guys. Twelve guys sat with Jesus, and you know what they said? They said, Jesus, I can take that cup. I can go all the way to the cross. I will not deny you. I will go all the way there for you. How many of them went with Jesus? How many of them went? Zero. Zero. And then when Jesus came back, he say, you lazy bums, I've said that before? No. He said, I still love you and I care for you. I am your assurance. What does this show? When we take the cup, when we eat the bread, it shows this. Do we get the glory? <laughs> are we the ones that can boast in our own ability of where we are in life or our own salvation? No, when we take that, we are like those 12 men. That' say, "The only one that deserves the glory, the only one that was able to go to a place that I can't go, is Jesus Christ." That is our hope. That is the gospel. That is the good news. Millennials, it's OK. Data entry is OK. A, jo- a boss that criticizes you and destroys you, it's OK. Because where is our insurance? Where is our salvation? It doesn't come from following our passions and finding this rainbow dream job. It comes from Jesus Christ. That is our glory. That is who we should boast in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for showing through 300 men that You are the one that deserves the praise and the glory. You are the one that we should boast in, not in ourselves. God, how quickly we forget, how quickly we do the same thing. We go back and say, man, look what I did. God, set our hearts anew. Put them in the right place as we take um, communion, that we would be reminded that we can only boast in you. Praise things in your son's name. Amen. Well, let's uh, continue this worship as we take communion. I, um, I'm going to ask someone to get the kids because I want them to be here while we take communion. One thing we do is we pray for the children uh, when they come up um, as they take the elements. And it's gluten-free bread, so you can grab some of that if you'd like. Um, And uh, we'll take it, and then we'll come back to our seats. There's grape juice on the outside, white grape juice, and wine in the middle. And again, we'll, we'll come up front, we'll walk forward, take the elements, and then go back to your seats. And then we'll all... Uh, partake together again you might not be there you know Dan I can't boast in God I don't know if I can boast in Him if you're there if you're saying that that's okay this is a place where you can process I don't think you should be there all the time (laughs) I think you should get out of that and I'd love to talk to you about that but if you're there don't come up don't come forward and take these but if you can say I can only boast in God I need Him then come forward and boast in Him as you partake in the elements. Okay? So let's um, read this. It's a a, um, kind of prayer preparation. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord. Creator God, be present with your life-giving word and Holy Spirit. grant that all who share the communion of the body and blood of your Son may be united in Him. Amen.